0: Um, I'm just so happy to be with you all this morning. Thank you for such a kind introduction. Your pastor is an awesome, awesome guy. Um, Such a thoughtful and deep person. Um, You can really feel his care. Um, He talked about mine, but I could really feel his care in our conversation um, for me, for his family, for all of you. Um, And I'm just honored that that bore fruit that allowed us to be in this space right now. Uh, I also want to thank you for, uh, in the the title of the sermon is Vulnerability Matters. And it was gonna be Vulnerability Matters on August the 1st. Uh, and then Vulnerability Mattered. And, <laughs> um, you know, my, my kid got sick, you all know. Uh, and I, my original message text to Pastor Jamin was, I'm taking my baby to the ER, I'll keep you posted. <laughs> and he was like, you can go ahead and say you're not coming. like That's okay, (laughs) but I wasn't ready yet. I was gonna make it happen. Um, So thank you for your care for me and for my family uh, in that moment Uh, and just so thankful uh, that we were able to come around and, and be back at this space today. So how are you guys doing? So I want you to know that I feel at home because I'm in a new church plant, new-ish, right? How long can churches be new churches? I don't know. Um, but I'm also in a disciple church. You see my little chalice thingy here? Yeah, so this is the physical plant, right? Uh, it's held with Central Christian Church. Is that still the, ch- the case? Mm-hmm. And I was ordained in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ in 2004, 1,000 years ago. And so I'm at home two times over now. It's very exciting. Uh, and it makes me recall and think about my grandma. Uh, are there any grandmas here? We got some grandmas. Listen, I have a question. Do you have a purse? Uh huh. Are there mints in it? <laughs> know you just like to check like but you knew you knew where I was headed um now I think about my grandma and I immediately think about mints I also immediately think about getting pinched I got pinched a lot when I was too loud uh in church um and uh as I said I was ordained in 2004 um and my grandmother was a really big part of that for me uh she um was at What's the adult equivalent of church camp? A conference. She was at a church conference and found herself in some conversation with some ladies from Chicago that she had not met, but of course she was talking about her grandchildren because that's what we do, right? Like give me any opportunity. So she was talking um, to these people about me and they asked her what I was studying and she told them I was studying religion, which was not at all the case. I'm not sure where she even got that. I was studying sociology. Which, if you know anything about Marx, can be way the opposite thing of religion. <laughs> uh, but she told them I, she was stu- that I was studying religion. They said, well look, I run a divinity school. She ended up talking to the dean and a professor from a divinity school. And uh, she said, give me your granddaughter's address. I should, I'll mail her some stuff about the school where I work. Well, at the same time, I was away in West Africa on a semester abroad. Uh, I was an undergrad at the time uh, and was literally getting my call to ministry at that moment. And I felt that God was calling me to preach. And I had a lot of suggestions to God for other people that God could call instead of me. I even gave God names. Uh... But the call, as you can see, did not let me go. And so I told God I would go to divinity school, but no more promises after that. I didn't tell anyone. I got home, and in the mail, the four months' worth of mail stacked up for me was an application to the University of Chicago Divinity School. And I burst into tears, (laughs) right? So this is my grandma's fault. (laughs) Uh, I call her Nana, and I always looked up to her. Um, When I see the vestments in this space and I see the plants here, these are all the things that my grandmother would have been doing uh, in our church where we grew up. She'd be making sure the vestments were not only on right, but that they were the right color for the right liturgical season, that the plants looked alive and healthy and had been watered, that the carpet was vacuumed. Now, she wasn't gonna vacuum it, but she made sure it was vacuumed. And that all these lovely bulletins were folded. Uh, That was who my grandmother was. Uh, She was dedicated to her work in the church, um, and that carried over into the rest of her life. She was dedicated to racial reconciliation because of church, because of those adult church camps. She had friends of lots of different backgrounds, races, and it was important to her that the divisions that she had encountered as a girl growing up in the US, um, that she would do her part to help heal those divisions. And so she was dedicated to racial reconciliation, and she was dedicated to visiting the sick and shut-in. She would drive her probably 1985 blue blue Buick, uh, to go visit folks. Um, And then when she couldn't drive anymore, she would take the bus to the hospitals and the nursing homes to go visit them. That's who she was. Um, And of course, she cared for us in the same way. Some people's grandmothers do fried chicken and cornbread. My grandmother did ramen noodles and turkey hot dogs like nobody's business. (laughs) She cared for us, and I loved and admired her strength and her prayerful faithfulness and her big, beautiful heart. So in June of 2004, while she was still living, I was ordained into the Christian ministry. And hours before the ordination service, uh, I was at our family church, which looked remarkably like this one. Uh, setting up for the occasion, and the church phone rings for me. You guys remember that? When a church would have a church phone, and then somebody would call you to give. So she had the church phone rang for me, and it was my grandmother. Now, my grandmother had worked in the church office for untold decades, and clearly knew the church phone number better than she knew my cell phone number. Uh, so I picked up the phone, hey, Nana, uh, and she was crying. Now you have to know, my grandmother was a lot of things, but a crier was not one of them. So I knew that whatever was wrong was really, really wrong. Between her tears, she managed to tell me that she would not be coming to my ordination service that afternoon. She just didn't feel well enough. And she was really sorry. And I was really stunned. Uh, Yes, my grandmother was 87 years old at the time and she had been diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma seven years before that. But the way I was looking at it, she'd been making a fool out of that cancer. She'd been up, she'd been around, she'd been herself. She had rarely, if ever, not felt well enough to come to church. Quickly, my brain was buzzing trying to figure out ways around this situation. We could make her comfortable, right? We could seat her in an isolated section of the balcony. We could drive her home early so she wouldn't have to interact with the people, anything. She had to come, I thought. She was a huge part of the reason I was being ordained at all. But she wasn't having it. Clearly, she was devastated, but she wouldn't change her mind. She was staying home. And by the time we hung up, we were both in tears. And I was ordained that day, in June of 2004, without my nana there. And I was reminiscing with my mom about this a year, about a year later, and she reminded me that we knew so little then about how bad the cancer had become. She hadn't told us yet that she had started wearing a patch that delivered a continuous stream of pain medication, for what she was feeling every day. Her organs were slowly shutting down. She hadn't told us that either. She was dying. And she did pass away, just three weeks after my ordination. Now, I had long thought about my grandmother as a hero, a saint, a fighter. Since she was 30 years old, well before the cancer, of course, She had been diagnosed with Paget's disease. Anybody familiar with Paget's? No, I wasn't either at the time. It's a degenerative bone disease that usually hits people in early adulthood and causes pain in their joints and bones every single day. My grandmother was in pain every single day I knew her, every day, and she never let it show. Maybe a little creak here or there, right? A little exhale, a little groan as she got up from a chair. I knew she felt weak sometimes, but I never really witnessed it until my ordination day. I want to read to you from the book of Matthew, chapter 26, beginning with verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of, with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. The word of God for the people of God. I'm sure the disciples figured theoretically that Jesus must have felt pain, theoretically got tired sometimes, But they hadn't really had to deal with it. They hadn't really had to look at it, right? What they got to see was him healing and feeding and being there for other people. When he needed a break, a respite, what did he do? He withdrew to a lonely place. Yes, sound familiar? Mm Mm-hmm. But on this day, in the Garden of Gethsemane, And remember, Gethsemane is an olive grove, and it means pressing, or the place of the pressing. So on this day, in the Garden of Gethsemane, an olive grove named for the profound pressing required to make olive oil. Jesus was a whole mess. Capital A, capital W, capital M. He was a human being, profoundly pressed by anguish, sorrow, fear, trepidation, the anticipation of his own death. Now he told his closest friends, the feelings were so painful that he thought the despair alone might kill him. He told them he needed them there. He needed them to pray. When was the last time you let the deep feelings show? The pain, the questions, the grief you weren't sure you would live through. When was the last time you told somebody I need you. And if you can't remember, why is it so hard? My husband, Rich, and I have a recurring skirmish about dinner prep. I am in charge of weeknight meals. He is in charge of picking up the children. On a night that works, he comes home with the children at 540. We eat about 6 o'clock. But a lot of other nights. He comes home at 540 and there is nothing even to smell in the kitchen. And in fact, I am not in the kitchen. I am on a Zoom call, probably for Micah. And I'm gonna be on that Zoom call for an hour. My husband says, where's dinner? And then I fly off into a feminist rant about how I should not be expected to be, uh, perform dinner for him just because I am a woman. At which point he sighs and says, you could have just told me at four o'clock that you didn't know what was gonna be for dinner and I could have stepped in and helped. So why don't I just tell him I need help? Because then I'd have to admit to him and to myself that I don't have it all together. That sometimes I screw things up. Sometimes, it's all too much. Anybody ever heard of Brene Brown? Yeah? Social science researcher turned podcaster, author, speaker. She talks about this idea that the connection between two people doesn't require them to eliminate the possibility that they were either disappointed or be disappointed, hurt, one another or be hurt, but the connection requires being vulnerable, open to all those risks, marrying somebody knowing that they might not be able to put dinner on the table every night. However, in opening ourselves to these risks, something else also becomes possible, not just disappointment, not just hurt, but also love, forgiveness, understanding, honor, resurrection. In Christ coming to earth, God opened God's self to hurt, loneliness, fear, death. But at the same time, God made possible the glory of connection, love, love, Forgiveness, inspiration, courage, and life after death. When my grandmother cried in front of me, it broke my heart, but it also broke open a lie. It broke open the lie that my hero was unshakable. It broke open the lie that being unshakable, unbreakable, is even required. Being a fighter like her meant sometimes tapping out. And learning this didn't make her any less a hero in my eyes. Instead, it liberated me to be just like her. No longer was she this far away person whose ideal I could never reach, right? Oh, I'll never be as strong as my grandmother. She lives with pain every day. I'll never be as tough as her. Even while she's struggling, she's going to help other people. All of a sudden, my grandmother was right here, (laughs) hurting like I hurt, brokenhearted like I'm brokenhearted, having to tap out sometimes and say, I need help. I'm guessing it shook Peter, James, and John in that garden to see Jesus so broken. I'm sure they wondered if they had chosen the right guy to follow. But later on, you see something show up in those guys. A particular kind of courage. Not that everything would always work out. Not that they were unbreakable. But instead, that their breakability was not the end of them. Not the end of their story, not the end of their mission, not the end of their movement. In fact, their breakability is what allowed others, moved others, to follow them. Because these imperfect, vulnerable humans were capable of carrying the glory of God to the world. Capable of starting a movement. If the pandemic taught us anything, if it taught me anything, it's that we are all profoundly vulnerable. We are physically vulnerable, mentally vulnerable. As I heard on the TikTok this weekend, most of us are one, I'm sorry, ma'am, the ice cream machine at this McDonald's location is broken, away from a full-scale meltdown in the front seat of a used Honda Civic. The world is actually on fire. And on top of that, life has the audacity to keep throwing regular life stuff at us. Sick kids that need to go to the ER, no time to make dinner, high gas prices, racial profiling, hate crimes, pay inequity, police brutality, broken ice cream machines, and broken promises. But what I hear God saying through this vision of a tearful Jesus crying out in the garden is that the way to survive this kind of vulnerability, this kind of pain, is not to pretend it isn't happening. It's not to pretend we can fast forward past the hard parts. Life is the hard parts. But life is also the chance to be open and vulnerable to pain and dare to keep loving, keep trying, keep fighting, keep caring anyway. I hear my Nana and my Jesus saying, baby, be real. Be real. Take a chance and be your real actual self in the place of depressing." Now, it's not like Jesus went full ugly cry in front of all Jerusalem, right? He pulled his disciples to the side and was like, I'm going to go over here and pray and fall out. Y'all just keep watch. And then he went a little farther and pulled just the closest three aside and said, y'all, I am really under the gun. I am really in the struggle. And then he went a little farther away than that, turned his face to God and did the ugly cry. It's all right. It's all right to be real. And it's not just permissible. It's not just okay. It's part of the Christian journey. It is what it means to be a person of faith. To show up before God as your whole self. To let those representations of God among us, your friends, your family, your loved ones, to let them see you sweat. It Doesn't make you look bad, it makes that glory accessible. It takes a lot of vulnerability to engage in the work of justice. But when we march in the streets, it's not because we're not afraid of prison. Get that out your head. It's because we're afraid if we don't go, if we keep silent, they'll keep running our schools like prisons. When we stand before City Hall with our demands and our signs, it's not with a clueless bravado. It's with a real understanding that our ours or our loved ones' next encounter with law enforcement could be fatal. Yes, it's safer to stay home. Yes, it's safer to stay quiet. It's safer not to challenge those in positions of power. What if we fail? What if we're wrong? But we do this work of justice, not because it's safe, not even because we can possibly make it safe, but because our lives and our neighbors' lives are in real danger. We do it not despite our vulnerability, but because of it. But when we do, we open ourselves up, as my, boss and form, my former boss and theologian Christine Cope would say, to both devastation and transformation. We open ourselves up to let our hopes become real, to let the things we fight for, march for, shout for, become reality in our midst. You know, my grandmother gave me the better thing that day at my ordination. She gave me the courage to be real more often. I'm not that great at it. I still show up at 5.30 with no dinner plans sometimes. But I'm learning to check in with my husband at 4.30 and say, I got nothing, babe, you want me to order a pizza? And we're closer because he knows that I trust him with my fallibility, And he gets a chance to step up and rescue and save the day. And everybody wins, also everybody eats. But my grandmother gave me that gift, she taught me that. And even though she wasn't physically present on my ordination day, she was there. She had insisted I be given a robe, for my ordination gift and I still have it. And I look at it today and I know that long before I knew I would be a minister, she knew I would be a minister and had planned ahead. And while she's not here in her physical form today, you can still see her in these vestments, <laughs> in these plants that are alive, but also in my long feet, in the color of my eyes, the particular shade of brown in my skin. And I hope you can also see her in the way I try and show up for ministry as myself. Sometimes praying with others, sometimes praying with my feet, sometimes hoping that somebody will stay awake and pray with me.